Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In the 1960s, art collector and philanthropist Dominique de Menil began a research project and photo archive called The Image of the Black in Western Art. Through the collaboration of Harvard University Press and the W.E.B. Dubois Institute for African and African American Research, the project reaches its completion. The last two volumes in the series mark the 20th century transition from the depiction of people of African descent by others to their self-representation by artists in the United States, Europe, and the Caribbean. This fourth panel discussion, hosted by the National Gallery of Art to celebrate this series, focuses on the second part of the final volume, The Rise of Black Artists. Panelists highlight topics ranging from the Great Migration to globalization to negritude and cultural hybridity to the modern black artist's relationship with European aesthetic traditions and experimentation with new technologies and media to the post-black art world. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Um, I would like to um, first to introduce myself. My name is Faya Kazi, and I am the head of the Academic Programs Department in the Division of Education. The program today follows the format, to some degree, of the previous other panels celebrating this marvelous series, the series you'll hear about in just a moment. My job is to, first of all, introduce who is on the panel, and it will, um, you will hear me introduce David Beinman, Sharmila Sen, Adrian Childs, um, Kabana Mercer, and Stephen Nelson. But this is also an occasion because this audience that has supported this project, um, whether here in the live performance or has listened to the downloads, um, many of you have made all the difference to us. Some of you in the audience are collectors, some are the artists, and some are those who also support programs such as this. And I know he likes to wander around Washington incognito, but I hope you won't mind if I introduce someone sitting in the front row Professor David Driscoll. <laughs> and now back to the other introductions. <laughs> On my left is David Beinman, Emeritus Professor of the History of Art, University College London. He was educated at Oxford, Harvard, and the Courtauld Institute, University of London. He has taught and lectured extensively in the U.S. and has held fellowships at Yale, the National Gallery of Art in Washington, the Getty Institute, and the Du Bois Institute at Harvard. He is a scholar of 18th century British art and the author of books on Blake and Hogarth, as well as the editor of The History of British Art, Uni Yale University Press, 2008. Over the course of his distinguished career, his interest turned to the representation of non-Europeans in Western art, culminating in his book, Ape to Apollo, Aesthetics and the Idea of Race in the 18th Century. And it's from that book to this publication that we have seen David become more and more interested in this subject. Next um, on the panel is Sharmila Sen, um, who is the executive editor-at-large at Harvard for their publications um, and the Harvard University Press and formerly professor of English at Harvard. Next is Adrian Childs, who is associate of the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute for the Study of African and African-American Research at Harvard. 
She's written on diverse topics such as Henry O. Tanner in North Africa, black bodies in mice and porcelain, and the prints of David C. Driscoll and Margot Humphrey. As curator of the David C. Driscoll Center at the University of Maryland, between 2005 and 2010, she curated many exhibitions, including Her Story, lithographs by Margot Humphrey, Creative Spirit, the Art of David C. Driscoll, and many others. She is co-editor of The Black Body in European Visual Art of the Long 19th Century, Spectacles of Blackness, forthcoming. And her latest book, (laughs) we have the copy. It came fast. fast. (laughs) It's forthcoming, and this is the first. There it is. And the the title, the the settle on title is Blacks and Blackness in European Art of the Long 19th Century, edited by Adrian Childs and Susan H. Libby. So I'm happy, and um, this perfectly stealable book um, to show it here today. <laughs> Next on the panel is Kabana Mercer, who is professor in the History of Art and African American Studies at Yale University. He teaches modern and contemporary art in the black, black Atlantic, examining African American, Caribbean, and black British artists with critical methods from cultural studies. He is the author of studies of James Vanderzee, Romare Bearden and Adrian Piper, Isaac Julian and Rotomi Fani Coyote, and he has edited the Annotating Arts History series whose titles are Cosmopolitan Modernisms, Discrepant Abstraction, Pop Art and Vernacular Cultures, and Exiles, Diasporas, and Strangers. He is an inaugural recipient of the 2006 Clark Prize for Excellence in Art Writing. Recent publications include The Cross-Cultural and the Contemporary in 21st Century Art of the First Decade and Art History After Globalization in Colonial Modern Aesthetics of the Past, Rebellions for the Future. And I just learned there's another book coming, so I hope we will see Cobbin and Mercer here um, when the book is out. I believe it's next spring. Bookending the panel is our colleague Stephen Nelson, Associate Professor of African and African American Art History at the University of California, Los Angeles, and Cohen Fellow at the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research at Harvard University this year. Professor Nelson is a contributing editor for African Arts and a former reviews editor for the Art Journal. He is also president of the Arts Council of the African Studies Association and treasurer of the National Committee for the History of Art. He is a member of the General Assembly of the Comité International d'Histoire de l'Art. And this, I just want to say how important this is, as this is the worldwide body. This is the, without overdoing it, this is the Olympics um, for the history of art. (laughs) So he is on the Olympics Committee. And it's not a very big board, so to be the treasurer of that group, I can only say he doesn't... Yeah, he looks very relaxed over there. (laughs) (laughs) He's also um, been an advisory board member for um, the Center for Advanced Studies in the Visual Arts here at the National Gallery. He's co-editor of the exhibition catalog New Histories, In addition to that, his writings on the contemporary and historic arts, architecture and urbanism of Africa and its diasporas, 
um, African-American art history and queer studies have appeared in numerous anthologies and exhibition catalogs. He too is currently working on a new book. I hope it hasn't appeared this week. Um, no. <laughs> this one is entitled Dakar, The Making of an African Metropolis, and he also has underway a study of the Underground Railway. This is, for me, an unbelievable pleasure to have brought these people together, that they agreed to come, and I would now like to turn the um, microphone over to my colleague, David Beinman. Right, thank you very much, Fire. Um, as, as she said, this panel is to celebrate the publication of the final volume of The Image of the Black in Western Art, edited by myself and Professor Henry Lewis Gates, Jr. The project was initiated in the 1960s by Dominique and Jean de Manil in Houston, Texas, and the first volume of The Ancient World came out in 1975 in English and in French, and in 1979, with the publication of the second volume, John Russell in the New York Times complained about the august slowness of the series mm -hmm. and wondered whether, when volume three would appear. The answer, which surely would have dumbfounded him, is 2011, uh, 32 <laughs> years later. I won't go into the reasons for this long delay. In fact, libel laws won't permit me, but, um, uh, but it had one interesting consequence. The series, with the addition of Hugh Honor's marvellous volumes on the 19th century, which first came out in 1989, was meant to go only up to 1920. When we looked at it from the vantage point of the second decade of the 21st century, it seemed absurd to stop there. So Sharmila Sen, the, uh, who's been a wonderfully imaginative commissioning editor at Harvard University Press, commissioned a 20th century volume, volume five in two books, the completion of which is the occasion for today's event. And though we are on sale in all good bookshops, I hope, anyway. <laughs> The book we're celebrating today is the second part of the 20th century volume, um, the first part of which appeared earlier in the year. That book continued the story, beginning in antiquity, of the representation of people of African descent into the uh, uh, 1920s, and it was subtitled The Impact of Africa. The second book, which you see here, The Rise of Black Artists, represents a fundamental and historic shift from these earlier volumes, because with very few exceptions, black people are no longer looked at from the uh, outside, but represent themselves in all their complexity. Though the framework is still European, painters could now negotiate their African and diasporic heritage in myriad ways. This negotiation is inevitably governed by the tension between a black identity and a desire to be understood by universal standards of aesthetic value. But these tensions have proved to be immensely creative. Some artists have looked to African art, like David Driscoll, whom I'm delighted to see here, uh, others to jazz, and others work creatively with wider issues that place them in the mainstream of contemporary art. For many contemporary artists, the label black artist has often been rejected as they have sought richer and more complex hybrid identities based also on sexuality or nationality and often expressed in radically new media. 
The book took its shape from a meeting of the contributors at Harvard in 2011, and I'm delighted that two of them are here to today, Adrian Childs and Cobbina Mercer. Stephen Nelson has also participated in a companion volume, which is due in early 2016. That is the image of the black in Africa and Asia, which will bring the scope of the volume into the wider world and reveal some extraordinary images. I just want to end by saying this project has been an extraordinary journey for me, and it has been, above all, a collaborative venture involving scholars in many countries over 50 years, and I'm very proud to have made a small contribution to its completion. Thank you very much. I think David Beinman's contribution has been enormous. So uh, I, I just want to, um, as the publisher, I know what kind of work David put into this. So I think we're enormously grateful, David. And at the end of a 10-volume journey, I need to say this publicly. Uh, I just want to take a few minutes to tell you about, you know, just my recollections now of this volume and what I've learned from it. Um, it was in late summer of 2007, I was in China, and I got an email message saying uh, from the director of Harvard University Press that said, there is a box we have put in your office uh, concerning a project that we would like you to figure out. It was very mysterious, and unlike Professor Nelson, I actually did not know. I'm, I'm ashamed to say, but perhaps it teaches us something, that you know, I'm sure many of you knew about this series before 2007. And here I am, the publisher. I didn't know about this. So um, I came back to the U.S. I looked through this, this box, which had telegrams going back to the 1960s, telegrams going on back and forth between uh, the Dominiles and various museums around the world. Uh, I had uh, letters that were you know, written in typewriters that you know, my assistant at the time had never even seen such letters. Um, in fact, he had never, I still remember, I've actually seen telegrams. He said he had never seen a telegram before in his life until he held one. Um, but that tells us something, because it tells us about, you know, that this series has now gone on, and it's, its history, its publication history, it spans the better part of half a century. And so there's bound to be a handover from one generation to another. And that's something significant, that a new generation that had not always known about it, that in fact didn't know even earlier methods of communication, would one day come to open up a box and figure out, what do we do with this? Um, and in that sense, I think, you know, um, it is uh, right, Adrian, that, you know, the series is kind of become a part of the very history it aims to record, right? That this is a way in which you see how we are becoming part of that history. Anyways, I looked at it. I tried to make sense of it. Um, I had a tiny advantage in that I knew Henry Louis Gates Jr. from the English department before. And finally, I just went to speak with him directly. And at the end of the day, I have to say, um, you know, I made my decision to publish it purely in a subjective way. And in the past seven, eight years, I've come to realize that that's what really matters in what we do. It's, it's, it's the subjectivity, right? And my subjectivity told me that this book had profound moral depth, 
That's before someone actually wrote that in The New Yorker. I knew that it had a value that was beyond the kind of profit and loss statement that I would nevertheless have to provide for this kind of project. Because our profit on it is great. I think we profit from these 10 books, and it would have been a great loss if somehow that box just stayed unopened that day in 2007. I could not imagine this series without the 20th century being covered, and for that I'm incredibly grateful that David Beinman and uh, Skip Gates and all the contributors just rose to the challenge and made this possible, particularly this one, the final volume, which has taught me a lot because this volume is about representation, self-representation, subjectivity, power. Um, I know how these books are made, you know, from a very practical material way. I know what it costs to make get these images. I know where the paper is sourced. I know where it's bound, where it's printed, how it's glued and sewn, who trucks it over, who ships it across the Atlantic. Because this is what has to happen, right, for their work to reach you. And once a year, I come, because Faya is so kind to invite me, and I come to meet you all because I need to see what happens when these books reach their destination, and the destination is all of you. Uh, we were having lunch before, and I said, I, I believe that meaning lies in destinations. It doesn't lie in the origin. This book means nothing if it's not read, if you do not react to it. So I've come to see that culmination of that very important relationship, and I've also learned something else from it. Because it is about representation and self-representation, it has led me to reflect on the fact that people who make these kinds of books, um, how few African and African-Americans we see in publishing today in the U.S. This is something we were talking about at lunch. Because it makes a difference. Those who make books and those who buy and read books there has to be greater alignment, right? And I wonder what, you know, the kind of books you see would look like, you know, on any topic, by the way, not just on topics having to do with African Americans and, and Africans and race, but any topic, if there were more black commissioning editors, more directors of presses, if there was greater diversity, because frankly, there isn't. Even the Academy is more diverse than publishing in the United States. And I'm saying this as someone who has seen it from the inside. Um, so I want to just simply conclude by saying that I think that as societies evolve, as technologies and institutions that support um, art and publications evolve, we have to see a greater matchup between the makers and the users, right? those who write, produce, publish books, and those who read them. Because that's the only way you can get a fuller picture. And that's what I have learned from these books, doing these 10 books. And I thank all of you for giving me that chance. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can you all hear me? Okay. Can we cue up the images? I think the people love to come and see the pictures. Um, I want to just thank publicly David Byman for inviting me to join this. It was a dream come true, really. I, when I was writing my dissertation, I used to look at the books and I engaged them in the work that I was doing and to actually be participating 
uh, in, in the new 20th century volume about the voices of, of black artists uh, is, is it, I just want to cry, but I promised I wouldn't cry. So how did African, for me, I, I, my uh, topic is activism and the shaping of black identities. That's the title of my chapter, 64 to 88. I chose uh, to fo- focus on African-American artists because uh, that was my sort of uh, area of expertise. So how did African-American artists in that time employ this notion of the image of the black, um, uh, be it themselves or someone else? How do artists, when, when the artist is a person of color, how do the dynamics change? Let me see if I can get a picture for you. How do the dynamics change when uh, the power to represent is assumed by the black artist? And how do we put these artists' voices in the context of this longer um, history, these volumes that go back to antiquity where black artists are the subject of, of representation and not the, um, the voice uh, doing the representation. What happens when the power dynamics change? Um, and I, th- my, I consider black uh, American artists Western, of course, Western artists, and um, they are well aware and actually part of the Western tradition. They're not really outside of that, even though there are some ideas that you start, start coming in, they're part of this Western tradition. And so they understand and they know and they are really invested in this history of art that, in which their likenesses of people like themselves was always fraught, often fraught. Um, so when the time comes to represent yourself, when, when you have that kind of power, um, their, they, their focus efforts became to sort of address, to redress to reshape, to reformulate, to reinterpret, and in some cases to sort of annihilate that history that was so beautifully sort of um, articulated and chronicled in the earlier books. So these artists really are part of that, and a lot of them are speaking back to that. Um, So the period that I I focused on was uh, the uh, era of social unrest, uh, social activism, et cetera, the black arts movement, the civil rights era, and, and, and a lot about sort of the politics of identity as this time goes on. Um, and the, who do you start out with, of course, in, this, in, in that topic? It's Afrocobra, the African commune of bad, relevant artists led by the fabulous uh, and, but late Jeff Donaldson, who's also an art historian, uh, has a PhD in art history, I think one of the first blacks to get a PhD in art history. So um, his voice is really uh, coming to, to this issue of, of the power of the image with a, a lot of uh, deep knowledge. And um, he, he and others form a collective and so that's where we see a lot of groups coming together during that time as a group, as a collective, coming together, saying, what can we do um, to formulize, formalize the visual language of blackness? What can we do to, um, to represent this sort of black nation? One of their slogans was, it's nation time. What do we do to do that? And how do we codify that? I mean, they are very kind of strict in some ways. They explored the idea of a black aesthetic. While that is, we can look back on that and go, oh, well, I don't know if that's... Uh, something that really works, but it, at the time it, w- it was necessary to really drill down, as they say on, on MSNBC all the time, drill down in the idea of what, what, how do we represent ourselves? Because the idea was that white, white modes of representation, and are there white modes? I don't know, but white modes, whitey, as somebody said, cannot represent me in an authentic way. So um, what is authentically black? And then you know, there are certain things that they came up with, like certain colors, movement, text, words, a kind of a populist message, prints, things that reached the people. And because white modes cannot articulately and authentically represent me. Um, 
So we're looking at his wives of Shango, where many of this, much of this comes together, the, the dynamic colors, um, the, the beautiful women, the whole issue of, of black power style comes in with the afros and great uh, outfits. And then the idea uh, that we're kind of breaking away from the passivity of the civil rights music. They've got a bullet belt <laughs> on. Um, and there's reference to Africa. They're the wives of the African deity, Shango. There's a little bit of... Um, of uh, issues with the women in this, but that's not why I'm here to talk about. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> uh, so also, <laughs> um, also in, in Afrocobra's Wadsworth Gerald, you know, who's, who, who, who uses those same kind of dynamics with color, text, uh, dynamism, movement, and, and to represent Angela Davis. And he's drawing upon that famous poster, an image of her, you know, in full effect. And Angela Davis is obviously a, a you know a historical figure, and her, just her image, she's an icon of the movement. Her hair is an icon of the movement. And so sort of the idea that, that there's something, the, the naturalness of blackness um, was very important. So hair was very important during this time. And so the woman, women do not want to look white anymore and, and do things to their hair and straighten it, et cetera. And so there's a certain power and authenticity in their natural state of blackness that these artists are capturing. Um, I only have seven, six or seven minutes, so I'm going really fast, but I'll probably go over. Um, <laughs> We have other artists, well-known artists, who are absolutely in tune with what's going on, but they're not in the sort of collective, the groups, uh, but they're still part of, their work represents a kind of an activist, uh, certainly, um, spirit. Um, Elizabeth Catlett, her, her work, Unity, uh, which is a beautiful sculpture in mahogany. Uh, on one side is a faces, uh, African-esque faces, uh, stylized mask, and the other is the Black Power tribute. Now, of course, we all know that Catlin moved to Mexico. This is done in 68, the same year that the um, Olympics uh, had, they had Charon Carlos use the Black Power sign in the Olympics and to great controversy. So they're tra- she said she didn't draw on that. Um, but so I'm just she, she said that, but that's okay. But but it is a symbol, okay, and and it, it's a mean. It has a lot of meaning, and so of course another sort of uh, current event would have been uh, Damon Hammond's uh, treatment of injustice case, which was uh, a reference to the Bobby Seal case where he's bound and gagged, and these things deal with the present moment uh, of what's happening um, in the movement, and they also look back this kind of thing, looking back in terms of the historical black body, bound, gag, um, you know, this sort of history of injustice. Um, some, the, speaking of history, in 1976, we had the bicentennial, and, and artists and many others started looking back over the history of the United States for the past 200 years, and of course, you come to think, how do black artists, how does black history get constructed during this time? And so many black artists took it on. Bearden was commissioned by the uh, Philadelphia Art Museum to produce a mural that dealt with the notion of captivity and resistance. So the spirit of activism is still in there, and he's looking back at kind of the narrative of from slavery to freedom, this kind of familiar refrain we find in, in, in the black rhetoric, his, rhetoric of black history from uh, captivity, resistance, freedom. And so you've got your, your, your middle passage, you have Sojourner Truth, et cetera, you've got this... Uh, um, slave icon and, and Sinke, the, uh, the Mende captive who um, successfully led a revolt. So those, that's the kind of affirmative history that we're looking at um, that was very meaningful, particularly for the museum audience. And then we have other artists who 
are, you know, affirmative might not be the word. Um, so, well, Colescott, uh, Robert Colescott looks at, this is also about the bicentennial. Um, and, and he does this um, parody of, of the um, George of Washington across the Del- Delaware, and he calls it George Washington Carver across the Delaware, and you have a whole host of, of stereotypes, uh, you know, minstrels, mammies, um, just uh, kind of drunk black guy, and, and then George Washington Carver, who was a hero at the helm, so he kind of gets lumped in with all the rest of this sort of band of, uh, of minstrels, and it, Colescott offends everyone, but makes you think about uh, the history of art, because this is re- uh, related to the famous Leutz, I think, uh, painting. There is one black figure in that uh, original painting, and, and he's, he's taking aim at the history of art. He's also taking aim at the politics and absurdities of race in, in America, as we all are participants of it, through this notion of the stereotype. And between he and Betty Saar, who started that in the 70s, we're still dealing, a lot of artists still deal with this issue of the stereotype and the uncomfortable feelings. Um, Barclay Hendricks, who is Grace's our cover, um, is someone who, who um, I said he didn't have a dog in the fight. He was not interested in the politics uh, of the moment. But then he ends up producing images of people who are, we look at them and see of them as iconic of the politics of the moment. We have uh, Lottie Mama on the left and uh, New Orleans Nigga on the right. Um, and I'm glad that they put this on the cover uh, for many reasons, you know, because he really embodies the sort of spirit, but it's a more complicated portrait. Ma- Barclay is really interested in be- being part of the history of art. He loves Caravaggio, he loves Rembrandt, and he wants to take his world and, and, and bring it into that discussion. He's not like Colescott aiming back at the history. He's bringing his people into be part as part of that history. Um, and then Africa is a looms large, in this time period, and our own uh, David Driscoll goes to Africa, one of the er- early artists to really go there and incorporate self-representation through what he finds there in Benin City, visiting with the Oba. And, and as an artist and art historian, he's really trying to incorporate and reconcile um, this idea of looking at himself through the lens of this complicated history, not to say it's one plus one equals two. But there, are, there is a, a, a spirit that runs through that artists became very conscious of and incorporated into their own self-representation. Um, and self-representation becomes um, important in many other artists who are dealing with the idea of Africa, the dealing of the mi- middle passage. There's memory uh, that Howardina deals with, Howardina Pendel in Autobiography, um, there's Renee Stout's fetish. She incorporates her own contemporary body, and it's not a stylized body like the original Congo fetish and Kisi figures, but so she's bringing her own self into these ideas of power. And uh, Howardina's, of course, memories of the Middle Passage along with the memories of her own family. Um, and, and, and lastly, uh, there were a lot of artists uh, who could not fit in. I couldn't fit in, no. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't fit in. No, they, uh, they, they don't fit into the traditional narratives that we, we, we are often and kind of ascribe to this period, but who are extremely important. One of my, top of my favorites, of course, are Bob Thompson's homage to Nita Simone, and he had a short career, but he's looking at African 
um, he's looking at European art and really thinking about how to deal with that in terms of his own uh, sensibilities. But then he also um, drops Nina Simone down into the middle of a um, uh, what was a Poussin Bacchanal, original probably in the Louvre. And here's Nina Simone, who's pink. She's not black, but she's also a symbol of the black power movement in, in her, she has also an idiosyncratic voice in that um, symbol. So it's not, the people aren't black, but, the, but we have to loosen ourselves from being really registered to, uh, wedded to those that color. And finally, Jean-Michel Basquiat, who's, I think of as he being actually performing this sort of image of the black. If you think about the image of the black people, he actually presented himself as what he felt people expected of him as a primitive, as a um, sort of a raw, unschooled, and all of the above. And that sort of catapulted him to fame. And he really uses these ideas of the image of the black in his art and um, in his own sort of self-construction of his life. Um, so thank you very much. Thank Okay, well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, my brief was to address art in all media, all around the world, in all three decades since the 1980s. So it's slightly overwhelming. It was a challenge that had to be met. And I was assigned a subtitle, Globalization and Hybridity, which is really integral to the editorial architecture, the way in which the final two volumes were designed. And this I found to be incredibly helpful in terms of quelling my anxiety, but also finding a way to navigate through the material. After all, the breakthrough that's taken place in um, the global art world since the 1980s is that not simply more African-American artists or more black Atlantic artists, but they're artists who have made a breakthrough that's changed the game. They're game changers. And they've changed the way in which we think about the entire 20th century. So reviewing the material, I started to notice that there were four distinct thematic clusters that seemed to recur, they came back. Portraits, bodies, archives, and travel. Now, my title gave me the term hybridity. Hybrids are combinatorial propositions. And I started to find, as I went through the chapter, that really we see recombinant uh, patterns amongst these four uh, categories. They're really like optics, a kind of a sight line through which we can understand uh, the underlying issues that uh, artists have addressed. So my challenge here is to summarize that in seven minutes or less, and I'll try and describe what came into view, uh, because I think in changing the game, these are artists who have made a breakthrough uh, that's also altered the very vocabulary that the language of criticism has changed. And that's often referred to as, quote-unquote, theory, which doesn't quite do it justice because artists produce knowledge in their own right. But they've, and in doing so, they've changed our vocabulary by expanding it. Um, so my first question uh, is to ask, why was it that black women artists like Lorna Simpson, Carrie Mae Weems, or Sonia Boyce took the lead in questioning some of the conventions of portraiture? And we can see this uh, immediately in the way that Lorna Simpson approaches her figures from behind. This interrupts the basic rule of facingness, which defines what a portrait is. Simpson is an artist who understands that representation is the name of a problem to be dismantled. 
The aim for artists of the 80s onwards was not to produce more accurate representations, more truthful representations, nor more pleasing or more flattering representations, but to really pull apart, dismantle for scrutiny the conventions and codes that we take for granted and that, in a sense, um, codify the way in which identity is, is recognized. So what we have here is a post-conceptual investigation of those visual codes of identification and othering, uh, whereby images gain power precisely because they have the ability to position us in the social world. Some of the conventions that Simpson draws upon in her work are those that we associate with the criminal mugshot or even the ethnographic photograph where bodily types are displayed in front of a grid. Far from uh, suggesting that these belong solely to the colonial past, don't they influence practices such as racial profiling and contemporary surveillance? All these are part of the problem space that an artist such as Lorna Simpson is addressing. And we can see that in her strategy, um, we can't identify the woman in the frame. In other words, the assumption that seeing equals knowing, that we gain knowledge by simply looking at someone, is thwarted. And in this act, the woman uh, uh, is empowered. She's a resistant figure who escapes visual typification. So Simpson is an artist who's exposing how these codes work, not by opposing them, but by operating in and against their formal conventions. We might say that modernism, for the most part of the 20th century, was all about pulling apart the formal relations of representation, how paint on a flat surface or material that creates volume and mass is able to refer or to signify Artists from the, the latter part of the century are all unpacking the social relations of representation. Who has access to production? How are collections decided? Uh, who are the audiences that encounter works in institutions? And these all form part of the background um, of, uh, of, of these practices. So hybridity was significant for an artist such as uh, Simpson because it's recognized that race and gender are not either or. And this intersectional approach to identity was also significant for artists who understood that black and gay were not mutually exclusive. So the 1980s emphasis on politics of difference, which was often inscribed in representations of the body, many of those, such as Maplethorpe's, were quite controversial, is, as we look back on it, highly productive. It was very uncomfortable at the time. And, of course, we had the culture wars, which was never just about censorship. I think there was a backhanded acknowledgement that the constructionists actually had a point. Because, after all, if identity is not an essence, it means that there are no transcendental guarantees. So it was more than just censorship. It was a kind of fear of freedom response. Um, and that's why the politics of fundamentalism, I think, comes into play in terms of offering the illusion of stability. So uh, the quotational character of postmodern aesthetics have often been addressed, but we see in a work such as Looking for Langston, the 1989 uh, film by Isaac Julian, how here's an artist who quotes from George Platt Lines, the American photographer of the 1930s, in a way that uh, enacts repetition with a difference. He's also talking to films by Cocteau, Genet, and others, and really using intertextuality to reopen the archive asking the question, is the archive of early modernism, Harlem Renaissance, simply a repository of authoritative evidence, or does it also contain absences, omissions, enigmas, 
that raise the question of whether the past is representable as such. So that link from bodies to archives was something that uh, Keith Piper took up in his 1991 um, uh, installation. And of course, these are post-medium artists. That's another important distinction from artists in the earlier part of the 19th century, uh, sorry, the 20th century. Um, his research on the Jesus of Lubeck, which was a vessel owned by a Plymouth merchant, um, and who uh, Sir John Hawkins received sanction from Elizabeth I to compete with the Portuguese for timber, uh, minerals, and slaves off the west coast of Africa. And this was the starting point for a research project um, in which Piper was investigating how the imposition of Christianity and its role in the justification of colonization and the Atlantic trade got turned around when the black Protestant church became an institution of modern black self-empowerment. The icon of the ship has been radically important in terms of moving us away from a pan-African idea of diaspora in which a scattered and dispersed people will return to the origin, very influential for the first uh, 80 years of the century, to Paul Gilroy's notion of the Black Atlantic, in which the ship is an icon of how cultures travel, and by traveling, create new possibilities and new identities. So the key concept here is appropriation, how symbolic material gets turned around and re-signified by subaltern subjects. And, of course, this was the key move made in post-colonial theory, because up until the 1980s and 90s, the idea was that colonization was a steamroller. But once uh, we take account of the way in which colonized subjects were able to selectively appropriate some elements but reject others, it meant that modernity was never exclusively owned by the West. In other words, for the first 80 years of the last century, um, globalization was understood as standardization, that the world is becoming the same. Whereas in the last 30 years, we've understood that there are multiple modernities. And this is something that artists didn't simply reflect. They made it possible for theorists in literature, in other disciplines, uh, to pursue this path. So um, photos are interesting because they can travel far and away from the intentions of their maker. And that's because of mechanical reproduction. Uh, we might not know what the um, Malian photographer Seydou Keita uh, intended in that moment when these photographs were taken, but it's because images can be reproduced that they're able to travel across the world. The understanding of this also emancipates us from that binary between the original and the copy. So this was material that was out there in the archive from the 1940s onwards. We see this photograph from Bamako of 1957. In that moment of independence, uh, the emphasis on African authenticity meant that uh, these images were often seen as emulating the colonizer. They were buried in the archive. Western collectors wanting primitivism couldn't recognize the hybrid modernity in the self-fashioning of these subjects. So have material that was waiting for us. It lay dormant in the archive for 50 years or more before in the mid-1980s, thanks to uh, curators and uh, uh, researchers, it was drawn out, giving us a completely different understanding of how modernity was experienced globally. Fabric, like photographs, also has the ability to travel. Uh, in the installations that Yinka Shonibare produces, he uses the Dutch wax print, it's material that is often seen to be authentically African. 
It actually originated with Dutch colonizers in the 19th century who were producing an industrial copy of indigenous batik that they discovered in Java and so on. They found an export market in Central and West Africa. And really, Shonibari's installations that use this fabric disentangle the way in which um, different cultures come to be uh, in, uh, imbricated uh, one with the other. They, they were never separate and could never be understood in either or terms. So these were artists who all uh, transform our understanding of the entire 20th century. We're not just reading forward, but we can look back over the entire past century to see the way in which um, connections are being brought out that were in, under the radar, invisible, unintelligible, when you have an either-or mindset that says primitive, modern, the original, the copy, the mass, the individual, the authentic, the imitative, and so on. Artists of this generation reveal that cultures have always been crossing. They've always been mixing, translating, stealing, and borrowing. And we're challenged to understand this. Um, uh, this is the promise of the concept of hybridity. So here's the thing, though. Hybridity arrives in the 1980s as the kind of golden child that's going to leave us, lead us into a, uh, a way of understanding after this sort of either-or mindset. And I picked out three strategies in the central part of my chapter um, because this shifts by the mid-1990s. Uh, uh, we can see in the work of the Nigerian photographer but also the Afro-Cuban artist Maria Magdalena Campos-Pons, artists who are looking at the way in which Yoruba iconographic elements have travelled through uh, Santeria in Cuba and Latin American contexts, syncretic religions such as those, to mix and translate with European sources such as Catholicism. We see that the body is central to this kind of expressive personification of hybridity. Uh, and that changes the story. Rather than being uh, the loss of one's origin uh, uh, that's to be redeemed by return, we have uh, the invention of new identities over the abyss of freedom, suggested by this uh, brilliant blue of um, uh, Magdalena's construction. But uh, the thing is, by the mid-1990s, there's a backlash. There's the anti-hybridity backlash radically falls out of favor, not surprisingly, when you have the first Gulf War, you have the rise of Islamic fundamentalism as well, uh, and you have the sense in which multiculturalism became normalized, identity no longer an issue. So key artists of this moment include Carl Walker, highly controversial, but also Chris Ophelia. And they use an aesthetics of abjection to address the way in which race, uh, questions of race and racism uh, defy the notion of clear-cut separations and boundaries. And Michael Ray Charles, I think, is among their number, using a strategy that I refer to as the stereotypical grotesque. The carnivalesque and the grotesque, we've seen an example in Robert Colescott, all push against boundaries through excess and transgression and show the way in which these underlying links uh, can be rendered intelligible. For an artist such as May Charles, there seems to be no difference before black and after black. The very notion of progress that was central to modernism was all collapsed. That's what postmodernism is all about, the idea, that, uh, the idea that art is moving in a linear direction towards an end state or a goal. Um, that has radically been called into question. So artists are also responding, I think, through these strategies um, to the way in which the culture industry by the mid-1990s had also commodified the image of the black as a phenomenon of hypervisibility, as it's been described, that came to decouple blackness from a politics of resistance. 
So the key insight being made at this moment is that appropriation always cuts both ways. The 80s and 90s, black artists took control of the black image uh, for the first time in art history. Should not be surprised if the culture industries took control back. In other words, it's not a one-time deal. It's an ongoing process. There's a constant process of give and take that no one player has the power to bring to an end. And I think that despite the, uh, the anti-hybridity backlash, that uh, is the reason why it's so important to uh, think about the different ways in which cultures translate uh, um, and current, uh, translate. So, um, the hybridization of human and non-human bodies is there in the Afro-futurist themes that artists such as Ellen Gallagher, Wangechi Mutu, and Nandifa and Tambo explore. They're looking at the mutability of identity. Uh, and they understand that the growth of identity depends on its ability to morph, to change shape, rather than to be uh, an essence that remains unchanged over time. The iconogra uh, iconography of the Minotaur, of course, ancient, but it's given a fresh inflection by the ambiguities generated when a black female South African artist makes it the very means of her own self-representation. So I also identified in that segment uh, what I call mutating masquerade, an aesthetics of too muchness, excess, uh, which undermines our ability to read the figure-ground relationship. So whether the source is the 17th century Baroque, as it is for Kehinde Wiley, or whether it's the uh, masquerade in Caribbean carnival asks, these are masks. These are artists who are looking at the way in which identities become invisible, the way in which they elude capture and thereby gain a degree of uh, fugitive mobility. So I've probably gone over my seven minutes, but um, <laughs> I, 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 that was my penultimate point. My, my final point, because uh, I know that we have an opportunity for discussion, is that um, one view has been that we, since the 2000s, we've seen the disappearance of the black body in the kind of abstraction that Mark Bradford, who's based in uh, Los Angeles, uh, pursues, or um, Corey Newkirk. But really, blackness has not been eliminated. We have a much more subtle form of indirection. For example, in these curtains created by Corey Newkirk, he's using pony beads that are associated with vernacular hairstyling practices. And the merchant posters that um, Bradford collects where his studio is in South Central are all part of an underground economy so although we may not see an image of a black body in these works, they're exploring the way in which uh, identities and difference travel uh, through urban space. So I'll end on that point, because I know there are going to be other, other issues that uh, uh, come up in our conversation. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I first want to thank Faya um, for inviting, inviting me down here and David for suggesting quite forcefully that I do it. David is, David is in the office next door to mine. And when, you know, when he wants something, he comes in and locks the door. And, <laughs> and, and also, I want to acknowledge the amount of work that he's put into this, this series. I mean, 
above and beyond the 10 that he's done, he's working on another companion issue on the image of the black and African and Asian art. And, you know, being one of his difficult authors, um, he deals with us with patience and kindness and an iron hand. Um, <laughs> he gets what he wants. But, 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 uh, but what I want to talk about today is, is sort of a, the larger picture of, um, of Volume 5, Part 2. And, um, and, and you know, by way of that, um, I first came to the image of the Black Project in 1991. And I was, I was a first-year graduate student at Harvard, and I was in the basement of what is now, what was then the new art library, but is now the old demolished fog. Um, and I was sort of perusing through books, and I was a baby modernist. I was going to study French 19th century art. And I came upon Hugh Honors, issue of his volume of the image of the black in African art and the and volumes one and two were next to it volume three was just not there um and I was flabbergasted I was absolutely flabbergasted as a first year graduate student who basically didn't know that most of this these things existed and and so you know if we if we go back to 1960 and what the Demenels wanted to do what they really wanted to do was to create it was it, it was an archaeological project and so along with the books came a huge archive of images of black people in western art from antiquity to at that point the 19th century to about 1920 and people were just sort of sending them things and they were finding things wherever they could go and and these archives lived in Houston um and sometime around 1996 i believe they came up to Harvard um and at that point, the books were, you know, the books were out, and you know, we could flip through them, and we all kept waiting for other things. And the problem was there, were, there was the missing hole in the middle, which was volume three. But then, you know, many of us wondered about why end in 1920, sort of World War I, and we're all the black artists. <laughs> and, and so, you know, the, what, what we see today with the, with the revamped series, the, the reissuing of a number of these things that came out in 1975 and, and, 19, and, and later, um, along with the new issues that came out this year, is, is A, the, the sort of fulfillment of my, my desire, because it's about me, um, but also, but also a, a revamping, and David mentioned this, a revamping not only about how we think about the images, but also a really amazing historiography of African-American art history. And um, and you 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 hear two amazing examples here um, with Adrian and with with Kobina, where you know their own projects really you know they 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 look at this sort of on the one hand greatest hits of the field and greatest hits of black artists, but in a, in a way that actually makes us think about what they've done differently. And so if you were to read what other people have written before these two brilliant people have come in and done their thing, you would have a very different image of what black artists do and what black art history is. And so what one sees in, in this volume, in, in all of the essays, if, if, we, take a, if we take the macro view, um, is a is a movement of representation of African, you know, of the black um, by people by and large who are black themselves, um, and what that what that does is actually give us a new way to think of modernity, 
and that that black black artists and representations of blacks are central to that history. And it's not just sort of you know, African things that came in in the early parts of the 20th century through primitivism. It is that black people making black representations um, in the 20th century and into the 21st have always been modern. And I think that we cannot that we cannot overstate that. And I love. I love in, in Kobina's essay how he broke down the four things that become paramount when we start thinking about hybridity and globalization. Because for me, you know, if we think about portraiture, if we think about bodies, if we think about archives, if we think about travels, you can, you, as, as Kobina alluded to, you can push that backwards. And if you look at artists in the 1920s and the 1930s and the 1940s, many of those concerns, maybe not the archives so much, but, but the port, portraiture, bodies, travel, artists are doing it. They're doing it then. Some of them are going to Africa by the 1960s, some earlier. But many are you know, working in rural places in the U.S. and going, in urban places, excuse me, in the U.S. and going to the South, which in many ways is as much of a travel as going overseas. And so, and I, and I think that that, that, that that this volume brings out those kinds of things beautifully. And so if you look at the essays, you're sort of in conversation, and, and what is really intense in this book is the ways in which these essays talk to one another. I mean, you, you have the macro view um, in some of the essays, larger chronological surveys that, that look at different periods in the 20th century. And then one, you'll have one story Jacqueline Francis writes about the early part of the century. But then Rick Powell comes in and talks about the Harlem Renaissance and jazz and New Negroes, and his story folds over into hers. And so it's really quite stunning. If you, if you think about it. And then we bring abstraction into the picture, which was the mind blow for me. And, and, you know, because I think, you know, doing my own essay, I was like, oh, images, people, no abstraction, no abstraction. And, and suddenly, Kobina and Ruth Fine are talking about abstract artists, and I was like, damn, where, I should have done it myself. And, but, but what it does, and what, and what we heard with both, both of our scholars here, just through their talking, is how they have opened up the very notion of the image of the black. All right. And so in the 20th century volume, what we see is this movement away from a literal consideration of what that is. So it's not just this, right? That it becomes a more discursive dialectical field of blackness. And what I mean by that, are, you know, we, we start to see ideas of what blackness is and how it is not biologically fixed but socially constructed and culturally constructed. And we see things that move in and out in terms of, you know, diasporic ideas, Africa, um, gender, all of these things, and they move in and out throughout the century in different ways and into the 21st century. Um, and then in the end, I only have like about a minute left. Um, in the end, what this volume does, and I actually think that it's one of its great achievements, because we've been you know, sort of yammering on about, you know, for years, I mean, my whole academic career about the West and, um, and the Black and you know all of these things and what and and this you know this these volumes have lived with me I, I never bought them I waited for people to give them to me but um <laughs> but um but but once they came um what 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 the this volume does is actually start to unravel the very idea of the west 
And so when we start thinking about, you know, post-1960, when artists are necessarily traveling over overseas, you know, our own David Driscoll goes to Africa, you know, a bunch of people go to Senegal in 1966, they're going to Festac in 1977, onwards and onwards and forwards, we can no longer think about African-American artists, simply people who work in the States and never go anywhere. That that globalization and hybridity and travel start very, very early on. And that, you know, that coming back to the notion of are these artists Western or not, I agree with Adrian in the 60s, yeah, they are. But in the 90s, it gets very complicated because it's hard to tell in the larger social terrain who is Western and who is not. And so, and, and coming from my own vantage point in terms of writing from the other side of the Atlantic, you know, a number of the artists that, that Kobina mentions are also in my essay. And so they've come like this, that, that, that artists globally are thinking about similar issues and dealing with them to suit their, their different agendas. And so I think the great gift of the book, I mean, and, and I agree with the subjective, I respond to this book viscerally and subjectively, um, is in undoing many of the paradigms we think about in, in African-American art and also in the practice of African-American art history. And we show it to be complicated and complex and really multifaceted. Um, and I applaud the authors, I applaud David, and I applaud Harvard Press. This is, this is, a, this is big. It's a big deal. Um, and thank you very much. Thank you, Stephen. Um, I would like to um, thank all of our panelists, and I hope they will have some comments and questions for each other. But I would like to take you back just for a moment to 2011 when we launched um, the first part of the publication, and we were in the East Building um, in a big auditorium, and one of the first questions from the audience was, I don't, well, it wasn't a question, it was a comment, I don't like the title. <laughs> Could you tell us why it had to be the image of the black in Western art? And Charmilly had a wonderful um, answer because that was part of her job is to say why the title had to be and what it meant. And there is a moment, if you listen to this, and she said, I have been in meetings and every single one of those words has been contested. The yeah. <laughs> image. <laughs> mm -hmm. And today, um, I uh, would like to say is that one of the things that this panel has brought out for me is image, um, especially because of the art of this volume. And now we, um, there is a, a new glow and a new way of thinking about that word in the title um, since we've reviewed all of the others. So now I'm going to turn the, the microphone over to the panel for any other questions you have or discussion you have for one another. Okay, so hello? Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, whether or not these artists are, are Western artists is very, is very fraught. But I would just say that African-American artists, especially during this time I'm talking about, but are part of the sort of legacy of... of Slavery in you know in the North America and, and you know and and so that is a very Western whole you know kind of petri dish inside which you know these things developed over the centuries. So and then they're trained in in universities that are you know and they're thinking about 
those these images that somehow have created not the popular images they're they're you know trying to deal with that too but the, it, it is they really do even Basquiat you know is is a is I think done it he's a modernist I mean he's hanging around with Andy Warhol so they're really part of the sort of modern American landscape in, in different ways and so it's about they're trying to pull themselves away from it but it's still part of who, who there's a whole training yeah I think we should open it up to the... I totally agree with you. Actually, I totally agree with you. For me, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Um, And in my own department at UCLA, we had this conversation about 10 years ago where we had A and B, which was Western and non-Western, but we never wanted to actually say those terms because it was thought of as icky. And and so we're going through the, you know, what field is this? You know, know, modernism, it's Western. Roman, it's not Western. And my colleague was like, yes, it is. Um, African-American, and my pre-Columbianist colleague was like, no, that's not Western. I'm like, yes, it is. (laughs) And so, yeah, no, the the pendulum switched. Wings and what, my point is that as we as as artists start becoming more global, those 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 terms become harder to pin down. So let's open it up to. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should open it up to questions if we have any. Otherwise, we can just argue up here amongst mm. ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> we can talk amongst ourselves. Okay. See some hands. Yes, sir. So I have a, a proposition that actually uh, came about from a discussion with my mother, who said that. Um, I was describing my art collection to her. She said, I don't like the fact that there are no faces anymore on on art. So my my question, I think, would be, as far as the image of the black, how has this changed throughout the time? I know you're you're, you're talking about uh, the period right after, at the beginning of the Harlem Renaissance, and I know a lot of the scholars from the African American universities did travel to Africa. How has that, yeah. how, what has been the impact on our realization of our image, our self image, over this time period that has been covered by these volumes? Has there been a significant change? I know at one point I did speak with uh, Dr. Driscoll there about uh, seeing some of his more representational artwork which I had not uh, previously seen. So it may be a fact that the market is dictating what image of the black is now popular, what is a great, what is the new face of the black? Mm-hmm. Is it a market factor, or is it in fact the artist that dictates that? Commoner? Go ahead and take that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay, there are multiple shades of blackness. And when you start from that premise, you come to the conclusion that there's no perfect image. There's not going to ever be one single image that will win everyone's agreement. There are two ways of looking at that. Uh, You could say that this is a lack of unity, this is uh, dissensus. Uh, Another way of looking at it is to say that the whole purpose of modernism was to start a conversation. For Picasso, for Braque, for Mondrian, Brancusi, everyone... Modernism is not about producing agreement. It's about unsettling, disturbing, so as to bring something new into the world. So the, image, the question that you've raised is a huge one, and um, it's one that challenges us to think whether there's been progress, whether we've arrived at better images, or to, to, to realize that the, the conversation has changed. 
that we're in a situation in which where there's no clear-cut boundary between the West and the rest. What was it that Rudyard Kipling said? You know, East is East, West is West, never the twain shall meet. And, of course, there wouldn't be hybrids in, in Asia, in Africa, in the Caribbean, or in the New World, the Americas, if they didn't interact. There was always interaction from 1492, but the vocabulary we were using dictated the way that we thought about it in either or terms. So the upshot being that when you, you, it's no longer possible to have a clear-cut identity of the West because people travel so frequently, as uh, uh, black people in the diaspora have always done, and because identities are so entangled and hybridized. One view is that what you have is uh, harmonious coexistence. You have pluralism. That's rather optimistic, idealistic, and uh, unfeasible. The other point of view is that you have a constant conversation. And I think your question speaks to the fact that there will always be debate about the black image because no one has the power to bring it to an end and to command universal agreement about it, which is a good thing because that's what art is supposed to do. Can I just uh, bring the question back to the title uh, again? Because... um, I mean, one of the, the, the word in the uh, title that I've always found most difficult was indeed the, um, the image of the, the, the black. And when I first thought about changing the title before Sean Miller said we couldn't change the title, um, uh, I thought perhaps images of blacks would be better. But then I thought if we did that, then it would lose the sense of the kind of totality of the volumes that they do genuinely go from antiquity to the the present day. Uh, Having said that, I I absolutely agree with Kobiner that there is no single ideal. Um, In in fact, essentialism is probably the very thing, you know, the one single thing that this series is most about uh, getting rid of and, and denying is essential blackness and any form of essentialism. Um, I do just have a quick before the next question about your, grand, your mother asking you, why aren't there no pictures, what, what, uh, images, the body, the figure, and, and, and how is abstraction? No, what? what, what, what? Uh, her point was that a lot of modern art images mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I see. Away from the artwork, so that now you, you don't have um, ethnicity is mm-hmm. just a black wall. Oh, I see. I see. Mm-hmm. I see. I sort of the likeness, the individuality and likenesses. Okay. All right. I was going to talk about um, abstraction, but um, and there was there is a comfort in seeing a face, and there's a comfort for some people in seeing the black body portrayed in a certain way so um that disturbs often disturbs when, when there's no body no no for figure to hang your, your the narrative on then you kind of get becomes a free you're more f- a free associations but also you said are artists in charge of this artists are in charge of their own selves we have to know that artists are individuals they have their own sensibilities they like the certain colors and paints and you know it's not about what we we, we are abstracting what they are doing in terms of the ideas but artists are um are, are doing something in, in different ways that that represents themselves as, as sort of people not only who have have uh, have patrons and collectors, you know, but their own interests in in in, um, in materials. 
you know. Uh, and so we kind of forget that sometimes. Anyway, somebody else had a, a question. Can I say mm. one thing? Sure. The, the title did change. I'm just surprised that these wonderful art historians sitting here have not noticed how the title has changed. Do you not see the title has changed? Nine books, tenth one. The the title is no longer in black. Oh. <laughs> and, I noticed that. And, and, you know, because one of the... Th- I look at every corner of these designs very carefully, and I waited until we did the one volume where you finally had black artists representing black bodies, and I changed the... You know, and on purpose, because we had a long discussion. I said, I want ten volumes, but the ninth will be slightly different. Pick up... So, uh, by the way, David, it did change. Are you, I'm surprised. You, I, I'm the words person. You're the image person. Look, the color change. I, can I just say one more thing? Don't give up on the... I, I, I understand the idea of, uh, you know, West, East, Orient, Occident. I mean, you know, these terms are useful, not useful. But I would just say, sitting from where I'm sitting, don't give up on that West part, too, because I think you're right. You know, there, it, it, it must be claimed as somebody who came from the East yeah. and looked at the West from the outside. When I lived in the East, I thought the face of the West was white. Only when I came to live in the West and work in the West, I understood what really because that has to do with of course history of colonialism because what we had been presented the west that that was rammed down our throat was a particular kind of west that so I, this is just to say that you know sometimes when people who are outside of that west they see the west in a way that is far more complicated and 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 and, and includes you know black faces and black bodies and black culture so I would say, like, it shouldn't be given away. And for that reason, keep that Western art there. <laughs> we have some other uh, questions. Yes, someone with hand up. Yes. Uh, I'm going to ask a question as a black artist. Um, how important do you think it is for black artists to represent black imagery in their art? This is something I'm confronted with. I think it's your call. I think it's really your call, um, and I and I think that that's a really important question because you know in in the perfect world you wouldn't have to deal with it you just wouldn't have to ask it and if I'm guessing correctly you're you're having these concerns because other people are asking why you are or are not doing it um, and I you know I mean I know for for myself. You know, in terms of working on artists of African descent, I don't worry about whether they are representing black images or not when I do my own work. I, I'm interested in what the work does. And not every, you know, it's not your job as a black artist to represent black people or black experiences. It's your job to represent what you want. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, that's, that's the answer I would give you. Of that earlier theme, I mean, is, does it still figure in art? In other words, the 
depiction of mm. blacks? Has that just sort of that gone away, or is there anything left to be said about that? Um, you know, it's interesting. I had, in my uh, time period, I could have done a couple of white artists, uh, many uh, who were depicting images of us in the 60s and 70s, Leon Golub. I did an Andy Warhol print in, in, in mine that I didn't show today. Uh, and there were others who were doing, um, but it changed radically. So, no, it doesn't go away. And, of course, black artists are now taking on those images and, and doing it and re- reinterpreting those images that we see in the, in the earlier volumes as part of their new, new ways of representing themselves. But I don't think it goes away, and it is still problematic. And a lot of times, maybe, we, we didn't talk about film, we didn't talk about other media where we still have those issues, because we talk about them all the time. Oh, did you see that? And then the internet. Did you see that? What's her name? With Kim Kardashian with the thing on her behind, and that's, you know, that's, and she is, she is channeling the hot and tot Venus black image of the black woman's body. That is still a problem. Let me, let me stop. Go ahead. Well, yeah, just two points. Really. It's, it's still a problem, and it demands a fresh vocabulary. It demands an understanding of the way in which identities are never self-contained. They're never hermetically sealed. That's often the way they're represented, but it's misleading. Uh, I think no one was more controversial than Robert Maplethorpe 30 years ago in terms of seeking to represent the black body. But it's not about arriving at a judgment. Is this good or bad? Those are terms that stop the conversation. If you say this is positive or negative, you're not really moving things on. We want to talk about how. How did he depict? How is a photograph, a bunch of lines on a flat surface, able to provoke so much discussion? These are all ongoing questions that demand a fresh vocabulary that, that can keep up with what the artists themselves are doing. They're leading, we're following. I think that's the, the, the way it works. But just another point, though, because, yes, it's only in the second part of the last volume that we have self-representation. So let's think about that ratio. You have sort of nine to one. <laughs> it, it, meant, it, it means two things, really. It meant that the image of the black was very important for many centuries to people who weren't black. Mm. So you have the theoretical language about the other, which can be very unhelpful a lot of the time. But it's an illustration of the fact that West would not have had an identity if it did not find a non-West that would be its negative mirror Mm. for 400 years. Now, that's all complicated by the rich diversity that we see right throughout these different centuries of representation. But that very imbalance is revealing because it means that this is not just a minority story about black diaspora artists, African-American artists. You can teach the whole history of art with these 10 volumes. So that's an issue for me and my department and for other institutions because there is still the perception that that's what you do. Yeah. It's over there. And, you know, you get your enrollment. Some people like it, some people don't. No, what David and Skip Gates have shown us is that the entire field can be examined from this point of view. It's a way in which the entire story of art, it's not just black people in art, the entire story in art can be opened up to a fresh understanding. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 